Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, remind you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend upon those things that never change. That's right. Here we focus on those things that never change. You know, every now and then, I introduce the show with uh, a few words on the happy warriors. Um, I, I talk about how I envision all of you listening out there and why it is that I think of you of, as happy warriors. I'm not going to do that in today's show. You can always listen back to last week or the week before because every now and then, I let loose with my impassioned feelings of what happy warriors are and why it is that I love preparing this show for the ears of happy warriors. But in a nutshell, I would say that uh, I and, and those people who listen, I think, are people who are characterized by a willingness to acknowledge the existence of timeless truths. And that's not everybody, right? Not everybody acknowledges that timeless truths do exist. But we do. There are such things as timeless truths in this world. And we also, I think, share a willingness to defend those timeless truths um, against malevolent faddishness that masquerades as progress. That's right. The word progress is one of those words that has been completely hijacked by secular fundamentalism. There are so many of these words that can no longer be used anymore because they now mean something very specific within the lexicon of the left. And so, uh, and so I, I, I proudly claim that one of the things that, that makes me leap out of bed every morning is an eagerness to defend timeless truths against malevolent faddishness, uh, against progressiveness, whose ultimate object is really the destruction of civilization and its replacement with, well, what? You know what? Their dream is to replace civilization with, well, I think nothingness. I think that's their goal. It's to have a, uh, a system, a world in which people live with no timeless truths, with no rules, with no realities of any kind whatsoever. And so, in order to try and make some sense of what's going on around us, in order to acknowledge that we're living in a time of enormous change, and so, right, the more that things change, the more we need to depend upon those things that never change, let's try and distinguish between the things that do change and the things that should never change, those things that can anchor us to timeless truths, thereby helping us cope 
with the changes that take place all the time around us. And I'm not speaking about intangible philosophical debates. I'm not speaking about uh, alienated arguments in the academy. I'm speaking about changes that impact our ability to make a living, our ability to take care of our families, our ability to do things that are meaningful to us in life, all of those things are really under threat. Let me try and bring it down to very real practical uh, perspective, if I can. Let me ask you this. Let's imagine you owned a beautiful Series 7 V12 BMW. Would you take advice on engine maintenance for your car from somebody who's never owned a BMW? Think about that for a moment. I think you would. I think you would find yourself an outstanding mechanic, factory trained in Bavaria, near Munich in Germany, and who lives and breathes BMW engines. The fact that he either does or does not himself own a BMW is neither here nor there. He is probably an excellent source of technical information on the best maintenance practices for your engine. Would you agree? How about uh, that nice piece of waterfront property you own in Miami? And you want to develop that now. And you've decided that what you'd really like is to put up a building with retail on the ground floor and offices on the first five floors and residential on the floors above that with a hotel at the top. Right. And so you go and talk to an architect. And then you talk to another architect. And the architect you kind of like and you get on with, he shows you uh, buildings that he has, buildings that have been built to his design and you like them. And uh, he shows you models of buildings that he has imagined and that he would like to design and have built. And he uh, sketches out some drawings of what your building might look like. And uh, you decide, you know, I think this is the architect I'd like to work with. I'd like this architect to be the guy who designs my building in Miami. And then you discover that not only does he not own any Miami waterfront, not only does he not even own any buildings, he actually doesn't own any real estate. He rents, and you say to yourself now, uh, can I have this guy design my building? And I would imagine that after a moment or two of reflection, you would correctly conclude that the that not owning any real estate is not a disqualifying characteristic for him. There's no reason. You are uh, wanting to hire him to design you a building. Whether he himself owns buildings is neither here nor there. And you'd be right, I think. 
um, would you build a boat designed by a naval architect who suffers from terrible seasickness and never goes boating? I, I think that's quite possible. If I uh, went and took a look at a number of boats designed by this guy and, uh, and he sketched out a blueprint a design for a boat I like, sure I'd buy it. The fact that he himself doesn't boat is no disqualification. And um, how about a, uh, how about, let's imagine you are, you have uh, $2 million of discretionary money set aside for you. You need to invest that now. And you're thinking of investing it in a in the stock of a particular company uh, on which you're very bullish you're very confident that this company is going well is it possible that you might take advice from somebody who doesn't have nearly as much money as you do i mean you're investing two million dollars a lot of money and the person giving you advice is someone who hasn't got nearly that amount of money would you take advice from that person quite possibly Quite possibly, if he has technical information on that factory, if he knows something about the product made by that factory, if he knows about uh, competition in other countries, and he can really give you a lot of background information on the company in which you're contemplating making a major investment, sure, the fact that he is not himself uh, 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 the owner of as much money as you have, yeah, I don't, I don't think that would matter, would it? Now let's look at uh, another group of questions. How about uh, you know, like like any like any married man, there are times where you shake your head to yourself and you say, I just don't understand my wife. And this is, you know, in, in one area or another, whatever it is, whether it's sexual or whether it's uh, financial or whether it's uh, family and, and children, whatever it is, and you say to yourself, I need advice. Would you take marital advice from somebody who has never lived with a woman in his whole life? Yeah, I don't think so. And why wouldn't the uh, why wouldn't you say well it's it's kind of the same um my mechanic has never owned the car i drive but he can still give me good advice and uh this individual who has never ever lived with a woman uh, just you know he, he has he has the information doesn't matter to me where it comes from and i think that uh, intuitively you say nah i don't think so this is different. A naval architect who doesn't go boating, that's one thing I can manage with that. But somebody who has never lived with a woman giving me advice on my relationship with my wife, um, I don't think so. How about, um, would you take work and career advice from somebody who has never held a job? person has never had a job. Would you take career advice from such i think not how about uh would you take child raising advice from a woman who has never had a child 
Now, again, you know, you might think about that for a moment, as I have done, and I came to the conclusion that um, my wife would absolutely never take advice on child raising from a woman who's never had children. Does that mean that a child psychologist who's never had a child has got nothing useful to say? No, I'm sure I'm sure she has much of value to say. But in terms of many basic, important uh, questions having to do with raising her children, my wife would definitely rather seek advice from someone who has raised her own children. It's different. Um, would you take general career and business and money advice from somebody who's never made any money? I think not. Right now, you might well take advice from somebody who's made a fortune, lost a fortune, made a fortune again, lost a You know, you may well, but somebody who's never made any money at all, would you take general advice on money and career and business? I don't think so. So what is the difference between these two sets of questions? Well, the first set of questions about the Miami architect and the naval architect who gets seasick and uh, the investment advice from a specialist who may not have as much money as you and doesn't, uh, or the BMW mechanic, in that area, in all of those areas, you're looking for technical data. You're looking for specific data. Uh, data that could easily be obtained from experience. The data I'm looking for from the BMW mechanic is not data about how much fun is it to own a fine motor car like a BMW. No, it is data which he obtained from years of experience working on the engine and data he obtained from being trained at the factory, that data has nothing to do with whether or not he himself has owned a car. There would be a difference. The uh, Miami architect has never owned any real estate, but I'm looking for him, I'm looking to him for information that is essentially data. It's the information needed to be able to design a building. And that's something he got from his experience. And I can even ascertain that from looking at other buildings that have been built to his designs. But when we look at marital advice from a man who's never lived with a woman, here it is not so much a case of abstract data that I'm seeking. Here we're talking about something that includes wisdom. Here we're talking about timeless truths. And there isn't a university course that gives you those. There's no factory you can go to to get a degree in male-female relationships. Actually, correction. 
I don't know that to be the truth. There may well be such a university degree. However, I state without any fear that in so doing I am imperiling my reputation for truthfulness if I tell you such a degree would not even be worth the cost of the paper on which it's printed. Work advice from a man who's never held a job? Well, maybe he's an industrial psychologist with a string of degrees. Surely he has something to tell me. I don't think he has anything of any value whatsoever to share with me. He's never held a job, and he's going to help me solve problems I'm having with my boss or with my co-workers. Not a chance. These are matters not of data, but of timeless truths. General making money advice from somebody who's never made any? No, impossible. Well, maybe he's a professor of economics at a university. Yeah, he may well be, but it's irrelevant because making money has to do with wisdom. And so if I were to try and uh, separate these two categories of questions, one of them is more about technical data. How are we going to build the skyscraper? How are we going to repair the engine? The other one is more about spiritual understanding. Right? You, you come to me with a question about child-rearing. I need much more than book information that I got from my uh, child psychology course. And a lot of that comes from interacting with my own children over the years. Some of it comes from answering questions of other parents over many, many years. And so it's not so much about what I know as about what I am. So if I take a first crack at separating these two types of questions, I would say, well, one is technical data, and the other one is spiritual understanding. Or perhaps, uh, to put it another way, the, uh, the set of questions that I told you about the, uh, the mechanic or the architect or the boat designer uh, or the financial information guy, that depends on what you know. The other set of questions depends on what you are. And so the what you know type of question is not really very much shaped. I'm not going to say not at all, but the what you know type of question is not really impacted by what you are. And so, for instance, if my uh, BMW auto mechanic is a hardcore communist, I'm not going to say no impact because I like having a relationship with people who serve me and whom, whose services I engage. 
and it would be very hard for me to have any, a relationship uh, with somebody who is a hardcore believing communist. But basically, uh, would I be able to get my auto repaired? Yeah, I would. Would I take his advice on my car? Yes, absolutely, because his belief systems don't really impact in any way uh, how I have to work or fix or deal or, or maintain my car, right? Uh, how about if the architect who is building a 25-story building for me, it's my life's work on this piece of property I've been working hard and finally acquired on the Miami waterfront, and it turns out um, that this guy is not nice to women. He's been married and divorced 11 times. And unlike the president of the United States, who, uh, for the most part, his former wives have nothing bad to say about him, uh, this architect I'm telling you about who is going to design my multi-story building in Miami, uh, his former wives are not very complimentary about him, and neither is the long string of women he's dated. Um, now, I've got to ask myself, is he still capable of designing my building? I have to tell you the answer is yes. Now, I may prefer not to do business with him. It is possible that my wife might say to him, come on, let's try and find an architect with a better reputation to do our building. And we may well do that. But basically, the f and, and I think you see the point here, I could absolutely go ahead with him. I could hold my nose. I certainly would have no reason to suppose that there'd be technically any problem at all with the building that he designed. Um, because we're talking about what he knows rather than what he is and um, and and so it is with the uh, with the boat designer yes he is somebody who gets seasick but that doesn't matter it's it's not a contradiction to his being able to design a fine vessel now on the other front would i take marital advice from that same architect who has been through 11 marriages? No, I wouldn't. Would I take marital advice from somebody who's never, ever lived with a woman, never been? No, I wouldn't. Because here I'm talking about an area of wisdom that depends more on who you are than on what you know. Now, uh, work advice from somebody who's never held a job? Same thing. Same thing. Holding a job is very much a function of the kind of person you are. If you've never held a job, well, that also tells me something about you. I've, I've told you in the past that uh, when interviewing uh, possible candidates for the extremely exalted position of your son-in-law, somebody good enough to marry your daughter, one of the questions you should be asking pretty early on is, how does he serve other human beings? What does he do for humanity? Or to put it in very prosaic and un, uh, profound terms, what do you do for a living? I don't like that formulation because it, 
presupposes a selfishness. What do you do to make your money? No, that's very different. Your money comes as a result of what you do to serve other people. But if your uh, future son-in-law tells you, oh, me? Yeah, nothing very much. I'm a uh, globalist. Uh, I am a consultant. I'm a world traveler. Oh, I just like doing a little bit of this and a little bit of that. My heartfelt advice is to kick him to the curb and uh, tell him his services will no longer be required in the the role of potential candidate for your daughter's affections. Uh, Because your relationship to your work is very much a function of what you are, not nearly who you are. Uh, What sort of advice might you take from a heart surgeon? Well, if he's a competent heart surgeon with a good reputation, and don't forget, reputation is just another word for brand, right? Uh, when uh, you you decide to choose a certain type of product or a certain type of car or whatever it is, uh, you very often are going on reputation, right? Its importance could hardly be overstated. And so you choose a heart surgeon, great reputation, uh, people he's worked with speak of his competence, other doctors admire him. So you go to speak to this heart surgeon, and uh, when you sit down with him, you say to him, I'm so pleased you gave me an appointment. I really have to get your advice. Um, I am 35 years old. I've never been married. And I have two possible candidates for marriage. They're two young women I've met. I've gone out with them both. And I'm wondering if you might be able to tell me which one I should choose. If, you're there, if you have any questions, you can go ahead and ask me these questions. Go right ahead. And he's going to stand up from his desk and say, look, uh, let me see you to the door. This is clearly a misunderstanding. But wait, everybody thinks so highly of you. Yes, Absolutely because you are asking me a question about general timeless truths regarding male-female relationships. The area in which I am trained and in which I have an enormous amount of valuable data to impart is uh, hot. If I, if I, I located a, an outstanding carpenter, uh, there are lots of questions I would want to ask him because I, I truly love working in wood. Uh, I, don't, I don't do a whole lot of it so much, but when, when I do get the chance to, uh, to, to do something with a piece of wood, I like it. Um, whether it's carving or particularly on a lathe, I like doing things on a lathe. Uh, and so I have a lot of questions to ask an experienced carpenter. But very few of them would revolve around uh, asking for general career advice, unless I was thinking of following him into that specific uh, field, obviously. Um, how about if I got a meeting with Elon Musk, the, uh, the man who played a, uh, a role in the creation of PayPal, a very successful online, well, bank today, really, uh, and the man responsible for the Tesla motor car brand. There, there are quite a few things I would ask him. I'd be curious about having to do with battery technology, having to do with starting up a car company when I'd always thought that um, car companies were you know, multi-year 
things that existed in Detroit, and then all of a sudden in Fremont, California, you open up a factory. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm amazed. There's so many things. I would, I would be asking Elon Musk questions um, for as long as an appointment he'd give me. But during that time, not once would I ask him about uh, the future of civilization. Never once would I ask him, uh, what sort of world will my grandchildren grow up in? Um, what do you think of the future of marriage in America? Um, I, I actually would probably not even ask him whether uh, autonomous self-driving cars will become a reality. I know he thinks they will, all right, and maybe they will and maybe they won't, but it's not really in his area because a lot of that has to do with uh, being able to answer the question of why is it that after half a century of gender equality and egalitarianism, well over half the cars in which you see a couple riding are being driven by the man, like 80-something percent is more like it. Now, Elon Musk could not answer that question. And uh, I wouldn't ask him. I wouldn't expect him to be able to answer that question because that is the question having to do with timeless truths rather than with specific data in the area of which he is an expert. And it's for this reason that um, during the, the 60s, many young people journeyed to India and they were seeking a guru right? A wise man. And, uh, and there are all kinds of jokes about, you know, the, after, after climbing the Himalayas, somebody finally finds a cross-legged guru sitting on the peak, and, uh, and they say to him, well, can you tell us the secret of life? And he responds and says, yes, it's a can of sardines, or whatever the silly joke is all about. But the, the point is that there lay a kernel of truth in all this, which is, we all seek a wise man. So if I need data, if I need information, my main concern is what does the person know? The person whom I'm about to consult, what does he know? But if I need guidance in life, in areas having to do with male-female relationships, having to do with children, having to do with family relationships, and in general terms, having to do with money. Not specifically, uh, should I invest in this uh, deal, or how shall I, uh, what is the best way to get rid of that debt, or whatever it is. No, not, not specifically like that, but uh, more general terms, questions that have to do with my relationship towards money and commerce then I'm no longer looking for somebody with specific information. I'm no longer looking for somebody on the basis of what does that person know. I'm now looking for someone on the basis of what that person is. Because it is not possible for those questions to be answered by a low-quality person who has had training in acquiring the technical information, right? Um, a a low-quality person who uh, doesn't treat other people nicely can still be a terrific architect. 
a, a, a person who uh, drinks a lot and uh, is often intoxicated can nonetheless be an outstanding mechanic when he's sober. All right. World War II, the whole period of Nazi Germany, was, I think, an adequate uh, proof of this idea that you can be a great music composer and still be a, a repugnant human being. You can be a great scientist. Um, you can be a great politician and statesman and be a repugnant human being. Well, maybe I should distinguish between statesman and politician. But being a great human being, well, that's completely different. And so there are many areas of my life in which I would seek guidance and advice, but only from a great human being. Okay, what makes a great human being? Remember, it's not what you know, it's what you are. What is a great human being? And um, a great human being is a person who has certain qualities, um, number one, in, this is not in any particular order, but the person would have to be courageous. Why? Because cowardice is the natural default condition for human beings, just as it is for animals. And uh, it takes enormous greatness on the part of a person to be courageous, to force yourself to be courageous, to train yourself to have courage. It doesn't come naturally. Uh, here's something else that doesn't come naturally, but it's a natural attribute of a great human being. Humility. Being humble. Right? The natural state of a human being is to be a, a show-off, to be arrogant, to be provocative. But no, humility, that takes greatness. Loyalty. That's the third one. Right? The natural condition of human beings is to act expediently. Right? You just do whatever suits you best at the moment. That's not loyalty. Loyalty is part of being a great human being. Uh, it would require a relationship with God. What are you saying, that there's no such thing as secular great people? Well, I'm afraid so, yes. I, I have to tell you the truth, and, uh, and that is very much a truth, because relationship with God is part of how the world really works. So much of the world is spiritual that if you have no relationship with the divine, uh, you are going to be isolated from a whole part of reality, and that uh, would forever prevent you from being a great person. And so, yeah, relationship with God would be a requirement. Personal restraint. Um, you know, if uh, if I see you um, with a gold chain around your neck and uh, and with uh, a shirt that is designed to show me the muscles that you have meticulously worked on at the gym every afternoon, uh, you know, I think to myself, okay, you know, you might you might be just a fine carpenter, uh, but you're probably not a great person, right? Personal restraint would be a necessary condition of greatness. Uh, very self-disciplined would be another. Somebody enormously capable of self-discipline. Somebody who can defer gratification. Somebody who doesn't need to be gratified immediately. Uh, somebody who's not appetite-driven. Right? If, if I see the way you eat... And if I see from your bulging belly that there's just no restraint when it comes to food and drink, you're appetite-driven, whether it's for alcohol or for food or sex or whatever it is, but your appetites drive you, 
then you're not a great person. Uh, you are somebody who values independence, right? You don't want to be dependent on anybody else. That's a part of greatness. Uh, generosity, you're a generous person, right? So those would be the 10 most important characteristics of greatness. And by the way, as far as I know, as far as I've been able to learn from reading a number of history books, that's kind of how everybody saw George Washington, a truly great person, right? How wonderful to have a great person as the founder of a nation, but it makes perfect sense. So that that would fit as far as, as I can tell. Uh, to such a person, I would feel con- completely confident asking uh, life-impactful questions. I would ask advice and guidance on, on the important parts of life. I really would. For one thing, in asking really important questions, you have to feel confident about confidentiality. Right. You've got to know that the person won't go and blather your secrets because it's almost impossible to get meaningful advice if you don't reveal aspects of yourself that are private. And unless that person is a great person, you would rightly feel extremely squeamish about sharing very personal information. But with a great person, you'd be able to do that. Now, how about asking somebody, Questions having to do with, or not quite prophecy, but what's the future likely to be like? How are things, what road are we on? Uh, and, and usually people who wisely answer questions like that will always uh, have disclaimers that say, well, if current trends continue, then this is what we might expect to transpire. But again, for a question like that, you don't want technical information. You don't want somebody who knows a lot of things, although that in itself is not a disqualification, obviously. But above all, you want a great human being, a person whose vastness of the human experience lends some degree of accuracy to any predictions that such a person might make. One reason that I'm talking about this is because in the United States in, in specifically and generally in Western civilization at the moment, uh, there is enormous confusion about these two separate areas, areas that take training, technical proficiency, and data, and on the other hand, areas that take human greatness. And uh, we've confused the two very often rather dangerously. Uh, I can't help thinking of the economist John Maynard Keynes. Uh, Keynes was responsible for a lot of the post-World War II economic thinking, the idea that governments are best able to drive the economy and that uh, recessions can best be cured by the government spending a lot of money, borrowing a lot of money. Uh, You might well say that America's $20 trillion deficit is largely a result of uh, Keynesian economic thinking being followed in America for the entire second half of the 20th century. Uh, John Maynard Keynes died very, very soon after World War II, and uh, he was a very well-trained economist. Was he a great man? No, not at all. Of course, he wasn't. Well, you can't say of course, but he wasn't a great man. 
And yet, for decades and decades, almost any pronouncement of John Maynard Keynes was treated as if it was not only gospel, but gospel engraved in granite. It's really rather remarkable. Um, For one thing, I came across recently a lecture that John Maynard Keynes gave in 1930. So we're talking about the Depression, and uh, it's during the Depression. World War II hasn't come yet. Uh, World War I is still very much in consciousness. People are very aware of it. And uh, John Maynard Keynes gives a, a long lecture entitled Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. And what he says is that uh, we're now uh, watching a period that is going to explode out of this depression, a period of unparalleled economic growth. And and by the way, in this, uh, he he was somewhat correct. Uh, Obviously, unlike Churchill, who in 1930 absolutely knew that World War II was on the horizon, John Maynard Keynes uh, believed that everything was rosy and that the last war that people would fight has been fought and that now this period of unparalleled and unprecedented prosperity was about to launch. And, um, And he spoke in this lecture about how our grandchildren were going to have a huge problem, and that is what to do with their time. What he was what he was saying in the uh, in the piece is that uh, up till now, now nineteen thirty, uh, the primary struggle of human beings was economic, was getting enough to eat, making enough money to live. But uh, from now onwards. He's saying we got to realize, and let me, I'm actually going to quote him, from the 16th century with a cumulative crescendo after the 18th, the great age of science and technical inventions began, which since the beginning of the 19th century has been in full flood. Coal, steam, electricity, petrol, steel, rubber, cotton, the chemical industries, automatic machinery and the methods of mass production, wireless, printing, Newton, Darwin, and Einstein, and thousands of other things and men too famous and familiar to catalog. What's the result? He said, well, the result is going to be this incredible increase in the standard of living. And what we have to do is we've got to control the size of the population. As long as we can keep the population down, and this unprecedented uh, growth of economic productivity can be kept up, well, people are going to be rolling in money. Now, again, it takes a wise man, not just an economist, but it would take a wise man to know that if you're going to uh, interfere with the natural triangular population structure, namely each generation must be a bigger population than the one before it, if you're going to ignore that, uh, then Yes, uh, obviously, uh, reading these words, Keynes reveals that he doesn't understand that if you stop the growth of population, you're going to obviously also stop economic productivity. By the way, I think I've spoken about the the population growth triangle in other shows. You can go back and listen to those, but... uh, 
in a nutshell, based on the unchangeable, fundamental, basic wisdom that it takes more than two people to support two parents. In other words, parents who have fewer than two children uh, are acting antisocial. <laughs> I mean, this is wildly unpopular. You can't even say this sort of thing in public like I'm doing. But um, uh, many, many people say, oh, I don't need children. My social security will take care of me or my investments will take care of me. All of those things depend on a growing population, obviously. And that basic unchangeable reality, which is that two children who have their own lives and their own needs to also support two parents is very hard. You have to have more than two children. So whether they do it directly as in primitive agrarian societies or whether they do it contemporarily by becoming producers and consumers in a uh, modern economy, which makes your 401k and your investments viable and, and durable. Yeah, well, either way. But at any rate, uh, John Maynard Keynes, the great, post, the great 20th century economist, uh, says in his speech a lot of things that are foolish. And not only are they now visibly foolish many years after 1930, but any wise person in the audience would have said they're foolish then as well. Uh, quoting Keynes again, all of what I've been saying means in the long run that mankind is solving its economic problem. I would predict that the standard of life in progressive countries a hundred years from now will between, between, be between four and eight times as high as it is today. And he says, that wouldn't surprise me. And all that means is people are going to have a lot of time on their hands. What are people going to do? Now, by the way, he doesn't in any way define what eight times better off means. So um, if you measured it by um, uh, annual uh, on 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 prorated uh, gross domestic product, in other words, uh, how much each person prorated in a population is producing, he's about right. He's close to right that uh, the GDP of Americans today is about eight times on average uh, uh, prorated what Englishmen were doing in 1925 or 1928, which is probably the last years in which uh, John Maynard Keynes would have had economic data for. So he doesn't say what, what he means by uh, quality of life or standard of living, but in that he was right. What he's wrong about is that people would have much more free time. He was completely wrong on that. And the... Um, the, the idea, the rest of his speech is all about how we must find as much meaning in our leisure activities as we used to find in work. Uh, again, quoting John Maynard Keynes, thus for the first time since his creation, man will be faced with his real permanent problem of how to use his freedom from economic cares, how to occupy the leisure which science and compound interest will have won for him to live wisely and agreeably and well. Not the words, my friends, of wisdom. Not the words of wisdom at all. I just got to read you just a few more lines of John Maynard Keynes. And um, he speaks about compound interest, and uh, but he does so also very disparagingly. He writes disparagingly about people who are interested in making money. And in that sense, he really is a pre-World War II um, British intellectual. 
looking down, very much looking down on self-made men, looking down on people who actually care about making a living because he's from part of an aristocracy and part of an era that uh, that didn't, they used to look down on anybody who came from humble beginnings. America, of course, our American culture looks up at people who came from humble beginnings. That's why politicians so frequently lie about their beginnings. Uh, politicians who grew up in affluence concoct fantastic stories of having grown up in poverty because they realize that in America we value that. In pre-World War II England, uh, people who came from humble beginnings were, were looked down on as hard as it is to believe, and maybe it has a lot to do with uh, the subsequent uh, development of England. But at any rate, please listen to these fascinating words of John Maynard Keynes. Perhaps it is no accident that the race which did most to bring the promise of immortality into the heart and essence of our religions has also done most for the principle of compound in interest and particularly loves this human institution, this most purpose of human institutions. Do you hear that? He's talking about my folks. <laughs> He's talking about Jews. Perhaps it's not an accident that the race which did most to bring the promise of immortality into the heart and essence of our religions has also done most for the principle of compound interest. Uh, that's right, folks. Jews brought the promise of immortality into uh, human religious thinking. That's right. It's absolutely true. Um, <clears throat> the whole concept of a spiritual reality and the whole uh, idea of a world to come. All of this is in Judaism and Christianity. So the race, namely the Jews, who brought that promise of immortality into the religions of the West, uh, also did most for the principle of compound interest. And so we Jews also brought compound interest in the world, and we love it more than other people do, according to John Maynard Keynes. And, uh, and by the way, I would never uh, accuse him of being an anti-Semite. I really wouldn't, because you know what I think of that charge and that allegation. I think it's hugely problematic. And uh, and the fact is that I know of at least one very Jewish economist that uh, that Maynard Keynes was extremely helpful to, may have actually saved his life, I think, in in uh, in one context. So uh, so I I, I totally. I'm not saying he was an anti-Semite. I just think it's it's rather interesting, and again, it shows to me a lack of wisdom on on the part of Jane Maynard Keynes. So uh, he he wraps up his speech and he says, <clears throat> "The pace at which we can reach our destination of economic bliss will be governed by our power to control population, our determination to avoid wars. In, in other words, folks, uh, we can avoid wars as if we're determined enough." Right, that's not a wise man talking. And then the third one is the worst of all. Our willingness to entrust to science the direction of those matters which are properly the concern of science. To hand over to science, that's where we're at at the moment. Science is not wisdom. It's really important to understand the distinction. Science is not wisdom. And so this idea that we're going to no longer have to work, that progress in 
technology and science is going to bring us to the point where work will no longer be necessary. Look, this goes back a long way. It's not just 1930 and John Maynard Keynes writing and speaking. No, 1858, Karl Marx wrote explicitly about the forthcoming human problem will be what to do with our leisure time, because eventually, um, and he thought it would be even less than 100 years, science is going to get to the point where machines do everything. Karl Marx's writings of that period are fascinating. He says, well, we're at the end of steam, the era of steam, and we're entering the area, the era of the spark, meaning electricity. And in that, he was, of course, right. 1858 is not a bad point at which to say, well, that pretty much was the end of steam, and now we're coming to the era of electricity. Uh, maybe, but the conclusion he drew from that was not a wise conclusion, which, again, Karl Marx, as a materialist, uh, couldn't possibly have been a wise person because a wise person has to be aware of spiritual realities also. But Karl Marx said, yep, it's going to happen. Uh, in 1957, I found an article in the New York Times. Um, the guy was Eric Barno, but it doesn't matter because he was he was quoting a lot of other people as well, who said uh, it's clear that uh, that the uh, increasingly automatic I'm quoting him the increasingly automatic nature of many jobs, coupled with a shortening work week, uh, an increasing number of workers will have to now look not to work, but to leisure for satisfaction and meaning in their lives. All right, this was 1957. But you can find it more recently than that. And back to uh, Elon Musk, right? Obviously an intelligent guy, but not a wise man at all. Again, saying, oh, artificial intelligence. And Elon Musk sounds for all the world exactly like Karl Marx and exactly like uh, John Maynard Keynes and exactly like uh, Eric Barno in 1957. He really does when he says, oh, this is the dawning of the age of artificial intelligence, and now all kinds of people are going to be redundant. Uh, this has been said at every era of technological development. And you can go back to never mind the Industrial Revolution. You can go back much earlier than that. Um, you can go back to um, uh, one of the great technological advances of 2,000 years ago was water aqueducts that the, uh, that the Romans built. And I, I didn't have the time to track this down, but I don't doubt for a moment that there were Romans who spoke and wrote in the year 200 and said, well, all the people who are up till now employed in fetching water and bringing water to the streets of Rome. Well, they're going to be unemployed and we're going to have to find new work for them because they are, or else they're going to have to have leisure, whatever you say, because aqueducts, you know, 10, 20 mile aqueducts, some even longer, were bringing water into Rome, so much so that they were able to have fountains just running endlessly and spilling the water into the river Tiber to run out to the Mediterranean uh, because, right, well, all these, this that was a big technolo technological advance, but people nonetheless uh, wouldn't have to work at bringing water anymore, so people would have so much leisure time available. No, this is not the words of wisdom that you're hearing. Well, whether it was the water carriers of Rome 1,800 years ago 
or whether it was the arrival of electricity and Karl Marx's pronouncement, or the, uh, the, the expansion foreseen by John Maynard Keynes, or whoever it is. Throughout history, people have been saying, well, we're arriving at the human dream of no work, and our biggest problem is going to be, what are we going to use our time for? And there is so much of this material, by the way, uh, in, in a show three times as long, I couldn't give you a listing of all the articles and all, just from, shall we say, 1950 onwards to the present, the number of articles and books that have been written on, well, the work week is getting shorter and shorter and shorter, and we're soon going to have to figure out the biggest problem of mankind. What are people going to do to occupy their time? Well, Anybody who has wisdom, and by this I mean people who may not have attended one day of university in their lives, and you know that um, unfortunately my belief is that uh, university, particularly in the fuzzy subjects, tends to undermine wisdom, not add to it. Information you might get from university, but not wisdom. Uh, People with real wisdom understand that uh, no, even even with all the pronouncements. You remember when washing machines were invented and they started spreading, people had washing machines. Oh, people are now going to have so much time. Housewives are no longer going to have to. What are they going to do with their time? Um, there was, uh, uh, similarly, there were, uh, uh, there were people who spoke at the arrival of television and said, oh, at last, a solution to what people are going to do with their time. They're going to be able to watch television. They're going to have so much spare time because of all these technological advances. And uh, as an economist, John Maynard Keynes spoke not so much about the economic, uh, about the technological advances that were going to produce all the free time. He spoke about uh, the economic ones that, oh, through compound interest, money is just going to pile up and it's going to pile up faster than we need to cover our basic needs and so oh we're going to have just more money than we need so we're not going to work therefore what are we going to do with our time always the same thing anybody with any wisdom uh, understood that their answer was no good their answer was and this answer is always oh we must find just as much meaning in our leisure as we used to find in our work And honest to goodness, as recently as uh, the last few months, I've seen articles in prestigious publications that uh, speak about, oh, we must find meaning in leisure. Now this is our huge problem. From now onwards, mankind's most important problem is going to be how to find meaning in life from our leisure activities. Uh, We used to, in the old days, we used to find meaning in our work, but now we're going to find meaning in our leisure. I can't tell you how much of this material is out there. And uh, it floods the uh, airwaves. Forests are chopped down to make the paper on which this stuff is written. Millions and millions of electrons lose their lives on web pages where these kinds of ideas are propagated. But... um, a thought of wisdom would quickly inform you 
that uh, this is complete and utter nonsense. And any company that tried to get you to invest, saying that it was going to be building solutions to the problems of what to do with leisure time, yeah, not so much. I wouldn't worry about it. Not the way to go. And uh, again, anybody with uh, any wisdom says to themselves, wait a moment, there is no way I can find as much satisfaction in leisure activities as I do in work in exactly the same way that uh, somebody who is an enthusiastic health and uh, an exercise person says, look, there is no way I can find the same satisfaction sitting on a couch watching television as I can from an hour workout in the gym. Fighting against gravity is fun. No, I shouldn't say it's fun. It's never fun. But it is satisfying. It provides happiness. Achievement only is meaningful when it's hard. Right? Lifting uh, light weights and telling yourself, well, I'm doing the same thing as the weightlifter. Look, look at my arms moving up and down. Yes, but you're not fighting a resistance. You are not struggling. It is achieving in the face of struggle that produces true human happiness. This, what I'm telling you here, I mean, this is very basic wisdom. It's something everybody should know. I know all of you know this, happy warriors. Everybody knows that. Uh, we become happy warriors by fighting against the forces of resistance, be they gravity, be they entropy, uh, be they every aspect of resistance that is part of happy, healthy, fulfilling living. Look, it's not an accident that in America, the greatest engine of economic prosperity in the history of the world, in America, people are working hard. We take fewer vacations than Europeans. Americans work more hours a year than Europeans. And the more successful you are in America, the more money you make, the more work you do. Isn't that fascinating? John Maynard Keynes, uh, Karl Marx, and everybody else in that um, galaxy would all have said that the more money that people make, the more time they would take off and the fewer hours they would work. But it isn't true because work is fulfilling. Work is satisfying. Winning the lottery, which in a way would be the equivalent of what they're talking about, where, oh, there's enough money to just give everybody. This ties into the universal basic income idea, UBI, that everybody in the country should just be given enough money to cover all their basic needs so they got no more worries, and then they'll really be able to be happy and fulfilled. Uh, look, how happy are lottery winners? Um, they're euphoric in the first few hours. But it, as everybody knows, it doesn't last long. We find happiness in making money, not in taking money, not in getting money, but money as a measure of our achievement, money as a measure of how much happiness uh, and how much value we've brought to other people that does make us happy. Giving to other people is a huge source of happiness, even if you do it as a volunteer, even if you do it as a parent, even if you do it as a grandparent or as a relative. Giving to other people is hugely satisfying. And, uh, and it's, it's foundational to our understanding of economics. Unfortunately, 
the attempt that has been made to convert economics from a part of wisdom into a science um, has been fraught with failure. It's one of the reasons they call it the dismal science. Uh, because they, for, I'll just give you one example. They've been trying to find economic explanations for why different populations in America, different people in America, <clears throat> have different net worths. Okay, which means that even when you have things corrected for age and experience and jobs and everything corrected out, you still find some people have higher net worths than other people, right? This is just a, a, a true reality. It's, it's something that uh, is observable by anybody with eyes in their heads. And the answer cannot be answered economically. Using the science of economics, it's simply not possible to explain why it is that some people have much less money than other people who had exactly the same earnings. So in other words, on the income side, people are identical. But at the end of the day, in their savings account, some people have much more than other people. What's the explanation? Uh, well, it has to do with values. And uh, there was an, a consumer expenditure survey that was done. There was a Nielsen study done uh, looking at categories of people in the United States and, and finding out some people spend it far more on visible spending. Okay, what is visible spending? Uh, visible goods are defined as cars, jewelry, and clothes. Cars, jewelry, and clothes. Some Americans spend far more on those things. Other groups of Americans spend far more on education and on investment. Uh, these divisions of how Americans spend are fascinating because they have to do with values and wisdom, not economics. The measure can be done economics-wise. But what is the reason responsible for these decisions that people make? Culture and values. That's what we're talking about. And these things are the department of the world of wisdom, not the world of science. There is no scientific discipline that can explain why one child grows into somebody who spends and the other child grows into somebody who saves and invests. It's how they raised. But science has absolutely no way of measuring values because science is a very limited instrument, uh, like, like many instruments are, right? Um, a drill is good for drilling holes. It's really not very good for measuring how level things are. For that, you need a spirit level or a, a laser level. Uh, a saw is good for cutting wood. It's not really good for drilling holes in teeth for a dentist. Specialized tools is part of how the world really works. Our mistake has been to think that the tool of science can solve, explain, and answer everything. 
even in those fateful words of John Maynard Keynes, that we're all going to reach paradise, economic paradise of no needs anymore, if all we do is let decisions be made by science. No, my friends, that would be sheer folly to let all decisions be made by science. Some decisions have to be made with wisdom, which takes scientific knowledge into account, but doesn't weight it more than it actually warrants, more than it deserves. So now we, we understand why it is that uh, we always disparage the advice that is often given to new graduates of high school or college, namely, you know, find work that's fun, because that way you'll never have a day's work, everything will be fun, just find work you enjoy, um, find work that lets you fulfill your passion, you find this all the time, and many times on the show you've heard me um, uh, mock and disparage such terrible advice, because uh, fun does not produce happiness, work produces happiness, and so the trick, obviously, is to find real work, the best, most valuable work of which you're capable of, and then make that your passion, make that the source of your happiness, because work will always be with us. God put man into the Garden of Eden to work it. For those of you who take guidance from the Bible, uh, that's the meaning. That is a scientifically valid statement. And in the sense that you and I, as descendants of Adam and Eve, you and I are Adam. And you and I are living in what we are trying to turn into our Garden of Eden. God put us here to work. Never put us here to have fun. Uh, is there a word in anywhere in the Hebrew scriptures for fun? The word does not exist. It's not there. Uh, fun is not a goal. Fun actually doesn't produce happiness. As a matter of fact, uh, even the child story Pinocchio tries to make that point, that being in the, uh, the, the, the fun place is not a source of happiness. Ultimately, it's a source of sadness and unhappiness. Challenge, work, achievement, hard. All of this is hard. But that's where happiness lies. And making sure that we understand that and that we absorb that into our being and that we can convey that to our children and those we have a responsibility to educate, now you're talking. Now we're giving over something of genuine and lasting value. My friends, that brings us to about as far as we can go in today's show. I want to ask you to please visit our website, rabbidaniellappin.com. For one thing, uh, you can communicate with us there, and I appreciate that. That's wonderful, because uh, that is where I get to hear from you. So please, at our website, there's a Contact Us tab. Uh, shoot us a, a letter. Mrs. Lappin and I really enjoy hearing from you. And... Um, and as many of you have discovered, we answer quite a surprising percentage of the letters that we get. Uh, you can also read 
uh, previous episodes of Thought Tools and Susan's Musings and our very popular Ask the Rabbi feature. All of those are on the website at rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, you can also comment there. And if you look, you'll see our responses to the comments you do. In other words, as you can tell, it is an ongoing dialogue we seek Uh, with uh, our congregation, with those people who are part of our little world. That's you. And so instead of it being just one-way communication, we like it to be two-way communication. And our website is a great place for that. We also want to draw your attention to the resources at rabbidaniellappin.com in the store. Uh, First of all, every now and then, some of them are on special price. But even more importantly, there are certain Uh, life questions having to do with the wisdom side of life that we get asked all the time. And some of them have to do with biblical uh, insight. Some of them have to do with financial. Some of them have to do with family and friendships. Uh, Whatever it is, we have created resources. In other words, we have made our work answering those questions uh, and in so doing being a service to you. And so with that thought in mind, I ask you to glance through our store, a window shop, if you like. And if you come across something, a resource that uh, answers a question you've had, that answers something that has been worrying you either actively or at the back of your mind, then that resource is there for you. And purchasing it does a service to you and, of course, to us. But above all, explore the store. That's what I urge you to do at rabbidaniellappin.com. I mean, I could tell you about specific resources, as I sometimes do, but uh, a lot of the information about the resources is right there. You can actually read about each thing, what it contains, what it's about, what we address, Uh, So please go ahead and visit rabbidaniellappin.com and then you make sure that you give yourselves a week of good times with your faith, with your friendships, with your finances, and with your family. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.